Good morning. Invite you to take your Bibles and open up to Acts chapter 26. We're going to get there in just a few minutes. Acts 26. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one nearby in front. And if you don't have a printed Bible at home, uh, you feel, well, feel free to take that as our, our gift to you. Acts chapter 26. We'll get there in just a minute. Now, last week, we had a time of open confession in church. And I asked a question, an important question. I said, how many of you have ever been arrested? Now, I asked you not to raise your hands publicly. So I figured a good follow-up question this week, following if you've been arrested, was how many of you have ever been on trial? Don't raise your hands. Um, Now, when we talk about trials, much like when we talk about arrested, you can be arrested and think of it in the traditional way, handcuffs and jail, but there's another aspect of being arrested, being captured. Your attention is captured by something. And last week we said Paul was not just arrested that really, by, by Roman officials or by the Jewish leaders. Really, he was arrested by the glory of God and God's purpose for his life. Uh, just like we talk about arrested in two different categories, we can talk about the word trials in two different categories as well. Uh, not every trial uh, involves a judge. Uh, many of you are going through trials right now that have nothing to do with a court of law at all. It's just a difficult time in your life. You're going through a struggle. You're going through a difficulty. And, and if you've lived long enough, you've gone through many, and you recognize that's part of the pattern of life. And if you haven't gone through one yet, just hold on. One's coming your way sooner or later, right? Yeah, everybody knows it's coming your way sooner or later. So here's the question. What do we do with the trials we face in our life? We know they're coming. What do we do with them? What is God's perspective on the trials we face in our life? And for some of us who are Christians, who are followers of Jesus, we recognize that some of the trials we face in life come about because of our decision to follow after Jesus. That that we are called to a higher standard, a higher expectation, and so therefore some of the difficulties we may face in our workplaces and our relationships and school come about because we have committed our life to following Jesus and living our life in the pattern that Jesus set out for us. And that doesn't always come easily. Sometimes it creates struggles and difficulties. Maybe you've been in a situation at work where you were asked or expected to do something unethical or immoral. And because of your decision to follow after Jesus, you said, no, I'm going to do the right thing regardless of the consequences. And you found yourself in the midst of a trial, not because you did something bad, but because ultimately you committed your life to following after Jesus. Maybe you've been in a relationship where you know that the relationship had problems because of your conviction to following your life after Jesus, to, to living in relationship with other people the way Jesus called you to. And that created a conflict and a tension in that relationship. And you found yourself in the midst of a relational trial because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Early on, the early Christians uh, made an important discovery about the trials they faced in life. They realized that those trials uh, were sent to them by God, not just to test their faith and prove their faith and strengthen their faith. But in many cases, those trials came as an opportunity for there to be a platform from which God would do some of his greatest work, that he would reveal himself to all the people around, around them. Matter of fact, the apostle Peter, uh, when he was writing to some of the church, early Christians who were going to be tested, he, sa- he said this, he said, always be prepared, always be prepared in every season to give an explanation for the reason of the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. 
Every time you find yourself in a difficult situation, every time you find yourself in a trial, God is going to do a work inside of you, but God is also going to use that platform, that trial as a platform to reveal himself. And I think sometimes when we face trials in life, we may forget that that trial may be the very platform that God is going to use to display his glory and for us to have an opportunity to share the gospel with other people. The Apostle Paul, we've been following his life for uh, a number of weeks, um, and we have discovered that he has gone through a lot of hardships, a lot of struggles, a lot of trials. He's been arrested several times. He has actually literally been on trial many times, but it, it was always, Paul always took those trials as an opportunity to share the gospel and to share his faith. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at some of the trials that Paul faced And I want to talk about how those trials can become a template for us to take the trials that we face in life and use them as a platform to share the gospel. Because ultimately, that's what we've been called to do. Jesus' final instructions, we read it back in Acts chapter 1 back in January when we started walking through the book of Acts, was to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit and then to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, that's right at home, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But it begins at home. It begins at home. And even as we looked at that video just a few minutes ago as we started the service, we recognize that God's call for us isn't just to go to the ends of the earth. Yes, that's critical, and clearly we need to invest more resources there. But it also begins with a commitment for us to recognize every encounter we have, every trial we face, is itself an opportunity for us to share the gospel and to reach our own homes, our neighborhoods, our city, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. Now, if you've been with us, you've been think, you're probably now thinking we are never going to get done with the book of Acts. We've been in it since January, and we're probably going to be in it until the year 2037. I don't know that I'll even be around that long to see the end of it. Well, if you've been thinking that today, uh, you can take comfort because we are about to pick up the pace, which means... Strap your seatbelts on and hold on. We're going to get to Acts chapter 26 in just a minute. But what I want to do is I want to set that up for us and cover quite a few passages of Scripture to get us to this trial that Paul is on and to hear the testimony that he shares in that trial. So we're going to take a look at what brought Paul to this courtroom and and what we can learn from it. So let's look, first of all, Acts chapter 21 and 23. Paul begins a series of meetings with religious and political leaders. There are four in particular that we're going to see through these chapters. Uh, The first one is the high priest by a man, man by the name of Ananias. And then from Ananias to a Roman governor named Felix to another Roman governor named Festus, and finally to King Agrippa, who is the king of that region. He's been given that title of king under, under the Roman emperor's authority. So Paul first comes into Jerusalem. He is coming there. He fake charges, false charges are raised against Paul. The Jews attack Paul. There's such a, a mob that is around Paul. It, it, it catches the attention of the Roman officials over the city of Jerusalem. They take Paul into their custody in order to protect Paul. But this high priest, a man by the name of Ananias ben Nabaticus, was the Jewish high priest. And he was determined that he was going to squelch the, the, the message of the gospel under his regime. He did not want Paul or other Christians going around telling people about Jesus. And so he, uh, he organizes a mob of people 
who are basically going to go and lynch Paul and kill him. They're going to steal him from under the authority of the Romans, and they're going to kill him. Paul is made aware of this. The Roman officials are made aware of this. And in Acts 23, verse 23 and 24, we read this. The Roman official over Jerusalem says, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Now, that means they're going in the middle of the night, late, late, late at night, also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Now, somebody do quick math. How many soldiers is that? 470. That's right. 470. Think about this. The Romans recognize that Paul is such a threat to the religious leaders in Jerusalem that they put 470 soldiers around him to transport him in the middle of the night from Jerusalem over to the governor of Judea, a man by the name of Felix. And so then in chapter 23 and 24, we see that Paul comes to meet Felix. Now, Felix greed was notorious. He was known as a very greedy man. He would do anything for personal profit. He had been born as a slave in the Roman Empire, uh, but through his relationships, he had worked his way up, and he actually became uh, a governor over the area of Judea. The Roman historian Tacitus said this about Felix. He exercised the power of a king with the mind of a slave. Now, Now, Felix had seduced a member of the Jewish royal family, a woman by the name of Drusilla. And so Drusilla understood the Jewish teachings. Drusilla was kind of interested in what Paul had to say. And so this this woman, this Drusilla woman, with her knowledge of Judaism, convinced her husband, hey, let's listen to this case. And in Acts chapter 24, verse 24 and 26, we read this. Felix, Felix, Felix came with Drusilla, his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, now catch that. So Paul is seizing this opportunity before the Roman governor to reason, he's using reason and logic about righteousness, self-control. Now why would self-control be something that he would talk to Felix about? Because clearly Felix was so greedy that he would take the woman he wanted to be his wife, he would pursue gain at any, at any cost. So he's talking to him pretty directly about these issues. Felix was alarmed. Why? Because he fell under conviction. As Paul is preaching the gospel, Felix fell under conviction and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Pontius Festus. So a new governor comes. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So, so Paul was Uh, He was falsely accused in the city of Jerusalem. A lynch mob came after him. The Romans uh, protected him, sent him to the governor. He stays in that governor's prison for two years. Ultimately, a new governor comes to place. So in verse 25 and 26, Paul is before a new Roman governor by the name of Festus. So he goes from Ananias to Felix to Festus. And in Acts 25, verse 9, we read this. It should sound familiar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor... Do you see a theme going on here? You see, these guys, these, these religious leaders and the political leaders were colluding together. They were working together. They had the same thing, they had the same interests at heart. They wanted to maintain peace, they wanted to maintain their control. And Paul was a threat to that control because the message of the gospel was beginning to change hearts and lives throughout the Roman Empire. 
So Festus offers Paul an opportunity to go back to Jerusalem to face his accusers. But Paul knows better than that because he knows if he goes back to Jerusalem, he is going to be lynch mobbed. They're going to kill him. So Paul instead appeals to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, he has the right to have his case heard before Caesar. So Festus decides, okay, you've appealed to Caesar. I'll send you to Caesar. But Festus, as the Roman governor, would have to be the one to prepare the case against Paul. But Festus doesn't have any knowledge of Judaism. He doesn't understand what he's being asked to, uh, to say about Paul, what accusations are being made about Paul. So Festus uh, brings in the Jewish king of the area, a man by the name of Agrippa. And so in Acts chapter 26, we see that Paul is brought before King Agrippa. And here is where we see one of Paul's boldest, most personal presentations of the gospel. Not in spite of the fact that he has been brought on trial, but because of the fact he has been brought on trial. That Paul saw every one of these opportunities, whether it was before the Jewish high priest, whether it was before Felix or Festus or now before King Agrippa, Paul saw every one of these opportunity as an opportunity to share the good news of the message of Jesus Christ. These trials were a platform from which Paul would share his faith. And I think in what we see in Acts chapter 26, this testimony that Paul gives, we see a template for how we can use the trials of our life also to have a platform to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So Acts chapter 26, we're going to look at four, four things that Paul does in, this test, in his testimony that share the message of Jesus Christ. So Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 2 and 3, first of all, we see that Paul shows proper respect. That is a critical message for us as believers to recognize that we show proper respect. It's what Peter said to the early church. Always be prepared to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with respect and kindness. And Paul does that. Look what he says in verse 2 and 3. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, Agrippa was not a good or kind man. He was really a fraud. He, he was no more committed to the law and the temple uh, than any of the other Romans. But because he was Jewish, because his family had, uh, had basically seized power at this time, they were always colluding with the Romans to maintain their power. But Paul recognized that his, her- his Jewish heritage gave him an understanding of the Jewish laws and therefore an opportunity for him to understand the message of Jesus better than some of his Roman counterparts. And so Paul recognizes, hey, this is a good opportunity. And he speaks to Agrippa with kind words. I think this is why Paul would later write to the people at the city of uh, Colossae in Colossians 4, 5, and 6, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt. Let Let me translate that for you. Be nice to people. I mean, especially if you're a Christian and you're on mission with Jesus, you have an obligation, not just because of your own personal integrity and character, that's important, but because of the reputation of the message of the gospel and the God you say you represent, to be nice to people. I don't care if you agree with them. 
I don't care if you have a different political philosophy. I don't care if their lifestyle lines up. I don't care what you think about them. You have an obligation out of obedience to Jesus Christ to be kind to them, regardless of what you may think or feel. That, that be wise, Paul says, in the way you act toward outsiders. That you recognize, hey, these people don't share my beliefs. They're not, they're not believers themselves. I am going to have to be wise in the way I interact with them. And to take advantage of the opportunity to let my conversation, number one, be full of grace. Full of grace. Seasoned with salt. So what does that mean? When you talk about grace and truth... Grace outweighs the truth. Not because truth isn't important. Truth is critical. You've got to include the truth. But sometimes, and you've met people like this, there's a whole lot of truth and a very little grace. That is a bad recipe. That's a bad recipe for sharing the gospel with people. A lot more grace seasoned with the right amount of truth can make a difference. Paul recognized this. He wrote to the other believers about this. But he practiced it as he was reaching out even to the Roman officials and to the Jewish officials before which he was brought on trial. So show proper respect. That's the first thing if you're going to use your struggle and your difficulty as a platform to share your faith. Now, here's what makes that hard. Because I don't know about you, but when I'm on trial, when I'm facing a difficulty, sometimes I let my guard down and I'm not as nice as I should be. And sometimes, because I'm on trial, I feel like I have a right to be rude. But I don't. In fact, if I see that my trial could be a platform from which I have an opportunity to demonstrate and share my faith, I should be more on my guard about being kind, more on my guard about being loving, more on my guard about being grace-filled in that difficult circumstance. Why? Because people are watching you. When you face a difficulty and a struggle and a challenge in life, you better believe everybody who knows you, everybody who knows the circumstances you're facing, they are watching you. And they're watching to see, how do you face that difficulty? What do you really believe? See, you can say what you believe all day long, but people will judge what you actually believe based on how you face the trials in your life. And so you show proper respect. The second thing Paul does, is you, is, and that we should be doing, is share your personal experience. Share your personal experience. Look at Acts 26, verse 4 through 23. Paul shares his testimony And if you've been following along with us in the book of Acts, this is going to sound familiar to you because Paul has shared his testimony several times. He says to Agrippa, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nations and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now see, Paul is sharing his testimony. He's saying, I was one of them. All these accusers, all these these good religious people who are making these accusations, I was one of them. Somewhere else he says, I was actually more zealous than they were. I, was, I, I knew the law better than they knew the law. I knew the accusations and the charges they were making better than they did. 
Paul was saying, this was me. He goes on in verse 9. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He's making a confession here. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. Now, what's Paul just done? He has basically said things that you would think would disqualify him from sharing the message of the gospel. He's saying, I went around persecuting Christians. I stood by and watched them, arrested, tried, beaten. Some of them were even killed. I was involved in it. He is being transparent about his shortcomings. He's being transparent about his struggles in life. For, for many of you, if, if you're familiar at all with the recovery movement, you know that that is an important part of the recovery process. It is being open and honest with your shortcomings and your failures. In fact, it is the number one way that other people are affected in their journey to recovery is by hearing how other people have journeyed to recovery through their own struggles and trials. It's not because they hide up all the difficulties. It's not because they, 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 they sugarcoat it. It's because they tell the truth about what they really faced in life. And it's the power of that, that confession, the power of that testimony that often transforms people's lives. It's the same thing in Christianity. That, that it's not because people look at you and see that, oh, he's always right. Oh, she is always so kind. Oh, he is always, you know, he's always good. What a good person he is. What a great person she is. No. It's when they understand, no, I'm not very good. This isn't me. This is the power of Christ transforming me. This is what my life used to look like. This is how I really am. Angry, bitter, greedy, selfish. The way I am now happens only because I had an encounter with Jesus. And Paul goes and tells that very thing. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And he, the Lord said to me, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul shares his personal experience and here's what he says. This is who I was before Jesus. This is how I met Jesus. And this is who I am now after I've encountered Jesus. I have a purpose and for my life, and I have a plan for my life that God has given me. Do you know how many people in your circles of influence are looking for a purpose and a plan for their life? They just get up every day, go to work, come home, go to bed, get up, and start over. They don't see any hope beyond the, the next paycheck. And we as Christians know that we have been called to a purpose much higher than just one lifespan but to an eternal purpose, a kingdom purpose. And Paul says, this is what I have now. This was my life before Jesus. This is how I met Jesus. This is my life now. Do you have a story like that that you can share? 
Have you worked on a story like that? Have you rehearsed in your own mind, in your own heart, out loud, the story of your life before Jesus, how you met Jesus, and what your life is like now? Because I think if we're going to use the platform of our trials to share our faith, we have to be prepared to share our personal experience with Jesus. Your personal, nobody can argue with your personal experience. They can argue theology, they can argue philosophy, but they cannot argue your personal experience. And we have to show proper respect and we have to be prepared to share our personal story. The third thing Paul does, and that we should also do, is to make a reasonable presentation of the gospel. It's not just emotion-based, that's our personal story. Here's the emotion of, of why I have my faith in Jesus, but it's also a rational presentation of the gospel. This is a reasonable thing for you to believe. Look what Paul says in Acts 26, verse 19 through 26. Therefore, O King Agrippa, now he's beginning to land the plane. He's getting ready to come right back toward Agrippa with a direct presentation of the gospel. Listen to what he says. Therefore, for O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. So basically he's saying all these things that have happened through Jesus, you can find them all in the Old Testament. The prophets and the law, it all points to it. That the Christ, that's Jesus, must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. He's saying this has been the plan all along. There's documented evidence throughout all of Jewish teaching and Jewish history that there would be a Messiah who would come. The prophet Isaiah said he would even be a suffering servant, that he would be bruised for our iniquities, that by his stripes we would be healed. Paul's saying this evidence has been there all along. It's right here for you to see that he would come to save not only Jews but also the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Now, for some of you, that's what you're afraid of. If you were to share your faith with other people, you're afraid of that statement right there. Can I just tell you, that's not a new fear. That's not a new accusation. For 2,000 years of church history, people have been saying the same thing. You must be out of your mind. Paul would go on later to say, this is the foolishness of the gospel. That it confounds the wisdom of the wise. They can't understand it. And King Agrippa is saying, Paul, you must be out of your mind. You're so smart. Agrippa recognized how smart Paul was. Your learning has finally driven you insane. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind. Listen to what he says. This is so important for a rational, reasonable presentation of the gospel. I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows these things. Remember, you've got Festus, the governor. You've got King Agrippa. King Agrippa understands Judaism. And Paul is appealing directly to King Agrippa. The king knows these things. What does he mean by that? He means that King Agrippa lived in the city of Jerusalem. He knew the Jewish teachings. He also lived in Jerusalem during the teaching and ministry of Jesus. 
He knew that Jesus had been arrested. He knew that Jesus had been crucified. And he was living in Jerusalem when Jesus rose from the dead, appearing to more than 500 people. He was one of the people in the city who would have heard the rumors firsthand, not secondhand, and not just from Christians, but from the entire city that was talking about the resurrection. And Paul says, you know about these things. And to him I speak boldly, Paul goes on, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. Agrippa, you were there. You heard the stories. You saw how the city of Jerusalem was turned upside down. How do you explain that, Agrippa? For this has not been done in a corner. It wasn't hidden. Anybody who was alive in Jerusalem at the time would have known what happened. They would have heard the stories. They would have recognized what was going on. Paul is making a rational appeal to King Agrippa and to Festus. These are not things you just believe and hope are true. These are things that happen and they're rooted in history. You can research them. You can go back to Jerusalem and talk to the witnesses who are still alive there. And they will tell you that it is true. You have to listen to this rational presentation of the gospel. Yes, there's an emotional presentation of the difference that the gospel makes in our life. But there's also a rational presentation that says this is not beyond the scope of possibility. It requires faith. But there is reason involved with the presentation of the gospel. And finally... The fourth thing that Paul sets up for us that we should do in using our trials to share the gospel is to extend a clear invitation. Look what he says in verse 27 through 32. Verse 27 through 32. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. It's pretty direct. I mean, think about the courage here. Paul's life. Remember, what what is this trial about? This trial is, is about whether or not Paul will be arrested, beaten, and ultimately executed. And think about everything Paul has said. Paul's not trying to defend himself at all. Paul is instead using this trial as an opportunity to share the gospel. And now he's extending an invitation to the very judge who is before him, who holds his life in his hands. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. I know that you do. Verse 28, and Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul, You are on trial here, not me. And Paul says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul's answer, you better believe it, King Agrippa. You better believe that I'm here for you to become a Christian today. You better believe it, Festus. I know you don't know the Jewish scriptures like Agrippa does, but I'm here to tell you right now, you think that you have me on trial here, but God orchestrated this opportunity for me to be before you, for you to hear the gospel. What are you going to do with it, Agrippa? What are you going to do with it, Festus? What are you going to do with it, Felix? What are you going to do with it, Ananias? Because this trial isn't about me. This trial is about all of you who are looking, who are watching, who are observing me on trial. As an opportunity to share faith. What would happen in your life? What would happen to the people around you if you began to view the trial that you're facing right now? I don't know what it is. But if you began to view the trial that you're facing right now as God's platform from which he would share the message of the gospel with other people. That he would strengthen and test your faith, but by strengthening and testing your faith, he would also be proclaiming the gospel to all the people around you. I wonder if this week you would just take some time 
And just pray this prayer. God, how can my current trial become a platform for your glory? How can my current trial become a platform for your glory? God, I'm facing health challenges. How can my current health challenges become a platform for your glory? I'm facing relationship difficulties, marriage struggles. God, how can my trial, can my current trial become a platform for your glory? You're facing difficulties at work, maybe unemployment, uh, maybe you're being forced to transfer or change jobs. How can my current trial become a platform for your glory? Uh, You fill in the blank, whatever the trial might be. What if God wants to use that trial as an opportunity to create a platform for you from which you would share the good news of the gospel? And and listen, when you do it, the, the template is pretty clear. Show proper respect. Share your personal experience with Jesus. Offer a rational, reasonable presentation of the gospel and extend a clear invitation for somebody else to put their faith in Christ. Let me ask you another question. Given the trial that you're facing right now, who has God placed in your life that has a front row seat of the trial that you are enduring? And how might the way you handle that trial impact their faith in Jesus? See, we don't, here's what happens when we, when we find ourselves in struggles. It's all about me. I didn't, I mean, right? I mean, when you're in pain, who are you thinking about? You're thinking about, just get up in the middle of the night and stub your toe. When you stub your toe in the middle of the night, are you thinking about starving children in Africa? You're not. That doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means you're a person. You're human, right? I mean, what does pain do to you? Pain draws your attention inward. And, and here's, what, here's what Paul knew that we should learn from. That while pain has a tendency to draw our attention inward, that situation, that trial that is creating so much difficulty in your life has just elevated you and given you a platform from which you may never again have a better opportunity to share or demonstrate your faith in Jesus Christ. But as long as your attention is all on you, you'll miss the opportunity every time. So let me ask you, who's got a front row seat? Who are all the people around you right now? who are watching you face a trial. And are you prepared? Are you prepared to use that trial as an opportunity to share with them the reason for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ? And finally, let one other group of people. If you're here today and and you're not a believer, I know even hearing a message like this, you might even say that's one of the reasons I'm not a believer. Because I feel like Christians, all they do is go around pushing their belief on other people. Well, first of all, you're wrong about that. You are. You're wrong about that. It's a stereotype. It's not true. People who do what I do wish Christians were more bold about sharing their faith than they are. The truth is we don't go around pushing our faith on other people. But even what you've heard me to say today isn't about pushing our faith on people. It's about seizing the opportunity that we have in the trials and difficulties of life to share the reason that we have hope beyond the trials of this life. That this life is not all there is. There's something better out there. How loving and kind could we claim to be if we didn't take the opportunity to share with you the reason for the hope that we have? That's why we share. And I just wonder today for some of you, maybe maybe today, even hearing the gospel presentation uh, through Paul's trials, maybe today you've recognized your need for a Savior That you are facing trials in your own life and and you're not prepared to to face them. You want the kind of faith Paul has. 
in Acts 26. You want the kind of faith of the Christians you've seen around you who have faced incredibly difficult circumstances, and yet somehow, somehow, through those difficult trials, uh, they have continued to thrive and grow in their faith in spite of those difficulties. Maybe today you'd surrender your heart and your life to Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to pray uh, for just a moment. And as we prepare to pray, uh, we'll be receiving an offering afterward. Ron and Lisa uh, drew your attention to the communication card that's in the front of that bulletin. I just wonder today, maybe on those prayer requests, maybe down there for you, maybe you would just share a trial that you're having and you would just voice the prayer, God, how can you use this trial uh, for me to have a platform to share the gospel with others. Maybe there would be the name of somebody who's got a front row seat in your life to the trials you're facing. Maybe you'd pray for them. But maybe today, if you're not a believer, maybe today you would just mark on that card that you'd like someone to talk to you, uh, that you would like someone to follow up with you uh, on what it means to put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you'll mark those cards when we collect the offering uh, in just a few minutes, uh, we will take those cards and we'll follow up with you this week. Father, we thank you for the privilege and the opportunity that we have been given through the trials of our life. Lord, um, like Paul, to be put on trial over and over again and for it not to be about us and for us not to become consumed with our own struggles, our own difficulties, but to recognize, Lord, those trials are a platform that you have built for us. That ultimately, Lord, those trials are for your glory Lord, may we be found faithful in the trials we face in life. May those people with front row seats, our children, our grandchildren, our coworkers, uh, the people who we're in class with every day, Father, may they see in our struggle, may they see in our trial your grace and your goodness. And Father, I pray for those who are here today who are facing the trials of life with no hope. Lord, I pray that today, like Paul, they would find faith and hope in Jesus Christ. And that from this moment forward, that they would see every trial as another piece of evidence of your grace in their life. Father, we pray that you'd be glorified in your church and around the world as we are found faithful to take the opportunities you put before us to share the gospel, whether that's at home or on the other side of the planet. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.